0: Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to begin, and I'm going to pray over the sound selection. And you can see if you can name that tune after divine intervention in prayer. So, let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of this evening and this time together and for the opportunity to study this wonderful book, The Screwtape Letters. We pray that you would help us to focus our thoughts during this time and that you would use this time to strengthen us and our faith in you, and in our ability to live boldly Christian lives. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. All right, so does anyone have any idea what this is that we're listening to? Ooh! Yes! Wow! Faust. So, what, what genre is this? Opera, yes. This is one of the great sopranos, Jesse Norman, um, singing the church scene from Charles Gounod's opera Faust. And we actually know that Lewis loved this particular piece. He wrote a letter to one of his friends encouraging him to try to find a recording of it because he thought that this duet was so beautiful. So... uh, you can imagine Lewis listening to this on the, probably the 78 plastic, vinyl, whatever it was made out of back then. Mm. Let me turn that off. Oh, sorry, Renee Fleming, not Jesse Norman. <laughs> yeah. Whoops. It, it reminded me, her voice reminded me, like Madame Butterfly, but I, I knew that, that was, the, uh, was a Yes, definitely. So, uh, what we're going to be doing tonight is delving into letter three, which is one of the handouts on the table, so I hope that you picked that up, and just by way of background, what we're doing uh, through this series of tape Letters is looking at these letters through the lens of uh, what some people call the contrapositive approach, which is looking at the letters not just for the psychology of temptation which is sort of the first layer but then also looking at them for what is it that screw tape and wormwood are trying to tempt the patient away from because those things those habits probably are a recipe for leading a life that will annoy the devil so that is uh That is part of our goal to learn how to annoy the devil uh, in a way that is pleasing to Christ. So uh, every week we will start with this verse because this is one of the richest passages in the New Testament about spiritual warfare and why it is so important for us to remember that we are in a battle. We are not out in neutral territory trying to follow Jesus. We are in a battle where there are powers and forces of darkness that are trying to take us out. So let us say this together. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Now, in my moments where I'm not entirely charitable, I think about trying to have a little exercise in class one night where I ask all of you to diagram this verse for the grammar. And it's not just because I want to make you suffer. Uh, there's something that you would learn if you did that. And what you would learn if you did that is that when you look at the verbs that are in this passage, the verbs in this passage are very proactive, imperative verbs. They are not passive, when you feel like doing it, kind of words. It's very much a call to arms. Uh, so, I'm not going to, don't worry if you're breaking out in hives about diagramming. I'm not going to make you do that, but just be, realize that we're instructed in God's Word to be very proactive about being prepared to engage in this battle. So, again, each week we'll talk about this. Why study the screw tape letters today? Screw tape letters written in 1941, millions of copies sold. Interestingly, The number of copies sold of this book right now is going up each year, uh, which is interesting. It's in excess of 160,000 copies a year, Uh, but it is particularly helpful for several things that we're going to focus on in here. One of those is understanding the battle that we're in. The second is thinking Christianly and developing a Christian worldview. Part of what... uh, Wormwood and Screwtape talk about in these letters is how mushy the thinking of most people is and how we can entertain all sorts of conflicting ideas in our minds at the same time and that part of what it means to take every thought captive for Christ is to realize that we need to use a little more horsepower in our thinking and developing a Christian worldview the third thing is lessons on the psychology of temptation. There's great insight in this book about how Satan works. And we've talked over and over again about our cultural stereotypes of Satan with the horns and the pitchfork and the tail and the red suit, you know, hiding behind the corner, wanting to reach out and say, come do evil. And that is just not the way it works. And Tape is very, very clear about some of the ways that satan entraps us and then habits to cultivate the deepened faith in christ one of the subtexts in screw tape all the way through is the power of habits and i don't know why there hasn't been more written about this with screw tape but it is throughout the screw tape letters and as we go through these letters you'll see it over and over again, and it, it dovetails very nicely with that book we've also been mentioning, The Common Rule, um, the subtitle of which is Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction. Not that we live in an age of distraction. <laughs> <laughs> As we're distracted by the choir, um, that's probably a good distraction. But cultivating these habits, we're going to be teasing out habits each week to cultivate. Now, I want to just say a word about that. Please don't hear this as being a legalistic prescription of you have to go do this, you have to go do that, you have to go do this, you have to go do that, because we're going to have about five habits a week, and there are dozens of screw tape letters. So if you heard this the wrong way, it would be piling this load of burden on you, and that is not what I want to do, and that is not what the scriptures want to do, but what we do want to do is to shine light on things that if we begin to incorporate those into our lives, that they will make a very salutary difference in the way that we approach each day. And then lastly, living a boldly Christian life. I'm going to take just a minute to say a word about how awesome the production was this Sunday at the Gilead Theater. There was a brilliant actor doing a one-man show on C.S. Lewis uh, that was entitled, um, oh, now I'm completely blanking. Yes, The Most Reluctant Convert, thank you, that comes from Lewis's quotation when he converted to theism. And he says, you must imagine me alone in that room and." Maudlin College on that cold winter night, trying to avoid the approach of him who I most earnestly desired not to meet. (laughs) I finally gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt down and prayed, the most reluctant and dejected convert in (laughs) all of England. But he gave a brilliant description of Lewis's conversion and part of what I really liked about it was that he put an emphasis on Lewis's willingness to follow the truth wherever the truth led him, and no half measures, not wanting to be partially Christian, and he incorporated one of my favorite quotations from Lewis where Lewis said, Christianity, if true, is of ultimate importance, Christianity, if false, is of no importance at all. The one thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. And I would like to suggest, only for me, I'm not gonna put this on any of you, but I would like to suggest that one of my problems is living a moderately Christian life. We don't want to upset the apple cart too much. But this show did a great job of emphasizing this bold living. And one of the most encouraging things about the show, and I know those of you that went stayed for the chat afterwards, but he was talking about that they've made a concerted effort to get this show onto college campuses. And they have had great success. And as we've talked about, that generation is very open to coming to hear about C.S. Lewis. And they are having thousands of students coming. They had 1,600 students at Berkeley, over 1,000 at Columbia University in New York, and the student newspaper wrote a glowing review of it. They're going to Duke and Chapel Hill. They're really going to every major university that they can get into. So I would encourage you to please pray for them, because that is an incredible ministry that they're doing. So onward and upward. So importance of habits. Uh, This little excerpt from letter 13, let him, that's the patient, let him do anything but act. No amount of piety in his imagination and affections will harm us if we can keep it out of his will. As one of the humans has said, active habits are strengthened by repetition, but passive ones are weakened. The more often he feels without acting, the less he will be able ever to act and in the long run the less he will be able to feel and you're going to see this theme running through these letters that if the patient which could be any one of us if the patient can be helped to just think about things rather than to actually do anything and among the items that you could do is prayer prayer is an action if you can just be taught to have vague feelings, so if you, for example, if you were in the 5.30 service and you heard Ryan giving an impassioned plea about mission, you could go home and you could think, oh, missions. Missions are so important. How wonderful that there are people who are missionaries. How moving and I, th- I feel for those people in Africa and Asia that have never heard the gospel. Oh, I feel for them. I'm sorry, you could go on with that for hours. And it changes nothing. And that's exactly what the devil wants to do. He wants you to get all worked up, hot and bothered about everything, but to not actually act. And you're going to see that over and over again in these letters. So just to quickly run through the habits we've talked about, first letter, connecting, thinking, and doing. Thinking about what the guiding principles and values of your life are and actually living in a way that supports those. This is the idea of having a mission, a mission statement, if you will, for your life and making sure that what you do actually aligns with that. Because many of us live in perpetual cognitive dissonance for example I could decide that I need to lose 20 pounds which probably I could do but if I decide I should lose 20 pounds and I'm going to make that my top goal but my habit is to go to Krispy Kreme every morning and order two dozen donuts and then eat them on the way into the office there's a problem there because I'm doing something as a habit that is totally antithetical to what my goal is. And that one's kind of funny, but I could come up with some that would make you squirm. So, just, just yeah, I'm not going to I'm not going to do that. But just be aware about that the second is how important it is to think about universal issues, to focus on what is true, good, and beautiful, because those things point us to the creator and make us think about the fact that there's something more than what we see in this world. And when we keep our eyes down and we're thinking just about the stream of what's on CNN or Fox News or wherever it might be, um, we can get all worked up about things that may or may not be true, and they certainly are not good and beautiful. Um, The third thing, spend time in beautiful places reading things that make you think and considering their implications. We forget that for all of human history until the last century, most people were outside a good bit of every day. And God's creation was speaking to them. The heavens are telling the glory of God, which, back to that show for a minute, I loved that the backdrop was that starry night, because uh, Lewis was a big believer in contemplating the wonder and beauty of the heavens. Um, and reading things that make you think. So important. Exploring the real sciences and the wonder of the earth and the heavens. God's Undertaker is a great book. If you don't feel like you know a lot about science, you're not very interested in science, um, that's a great book to read. That will fire your sense of wonder about God. (coughs) And then Love God with Your Mind. We tend to think of love as being emotional, feelings, all of that. But the scriptures tell us that we are to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that means you need to exercise your mind. Sometimes that's a little uncomfortable because our minds are flabby and weak and it hurts sometimes when we exercise them. But it is a great habit that will annoy the heck out of the devil. And then from letter two, uh, in letter two he's talking about, oh, that's really awful that you let this patient become a Christian. But he says, but don't abandon hope. 'Cause there are plenty of them that thought they became Christians and then came right back over to our side. And part of that means that embracing Christianity does not mean just thinking Christianity as a proposition might be true. Being becoming a Christian is committing your life to Christ and being transformed by the Holy Spirit, jumping in with both feet. It's as if you're standing by the bank of a beautiful stream and looking at how beautiful the stream is and contemplating it and the wonder of it, that's very different from actually putting your feet in and getting wet. And Tate says, don't let him get in the water. Keep him on that bank just thinking about how nice it is. The second thing is deepen your understanding of the church and scripture and history. And I think this is one of the things that we are most lacking in today. When I say the church, probably most of you think about maybe the building, maybe the congregation, but certainly the church that you belong to. You don't think about the whole history of all of the saints of God that have followed Jesus Christ from the time of the 12 apostles throughout history. You don't think of the church triumphant, described in Hebrews, that great cloud of witnesses cheering us on. And we start thinking, oh, we're just this little church, and the world is so big and bad like the big, bad wolf that we're going to be eaten up. But the fact of the matter is the church spread across time and history is the bride of Christ, and it is a formidable, powerful army of saints. And I just today I forgot when I sent out the first email to send the song links, but please, when you have a moment, go and listen to the big sing version of For All the Saints. It will help inform your understanding about this church that we're part of. And then this whole thing about anamnesis um, at communion. Anamnesis, the Greek word, means the past becoming real and the present. And that is the word used by Jesus when he's talking about communion. And what that means is that in a mystical way, not transubstantiation, not the bread becoming the actual flesh or any of that, (laughs) but what it means is that in the moment of communion, when we receive that bread by faith, we are mystically linked all the way back to Jesus and the Last Supper and Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and not only to that, but to all of the saints and people who have ever participated in a Holy Communion. It is a beautiful, amazing thing. And that's why the altar is in the front of the church. And you have the whole architecture of every church until recently was designed to focus you on that altar. Because that is the place where this meal that is the great feast and the remembrance of the sacrifice of Christ happens So, so important. Another thing, view others through the lens of Christ rather than through the lens of culture or self-interest. Well, that one is really hard. We have all been told, don't judge a book by its... But what do we do? (laughs) And we live in an age that has gone crazy about people trying to pretend that they're not old. Um it is it is remarkable how our age it used to be that people thought if you got old that was like a badge of honor and dignity and you looked up to those people. But now, you know, you might be eighty but you want to look like you're thirty and you may dress accordingly. And so it's a very bizarre sort of way of being focused on externals and We are not supposed to be looking at these externals. Scripture tells us that man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. So that is something that we need to cultivate. Another thing is to focus on the ultimate goal and the joy of following Christ, not the labor. Uh, There's a beautiful verse in Hebrews 12 where it says, Consider Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God. Consider him when you are facing all kinds of trials and temptations. We are not very good about considering. Consider means to take something, take that thought, hold it in your mind, and look at it, contemplate it, all of those kinds of things. And we are not very good at that. So part of the problem for many of us, and I've used this analogy before, so you just have to excuse me, but I think it's, it's a good one. Many of us are like that story about the two men in the medieval period where the traveler is walking down the road and there's this guy <coughs> with a pile of rocks and mortar and the traveler says, what are you doing? And the guy says, oh, I come out here every morning and there are these rocks and this mortar and I have to chip on the rocks, and it's excruciating, and it's hot and sweaty. And after I get it shaped right, then I have to stick it next to the other rock with this nasty mortar that gets all over my hands. And then finally, when it gets dark, they let me go home, and then I come back the next day, and I do it all over again. And then he gets a little farther down and sees another guy doing the same thing, and he wonders, well, are they working for the same company and he says to the other guy, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm shaping these stones and using this mortar because I'm building a cathedral. <laughs> and they're doing exactly the same thing, but their mental attitude about it is entirely different. And all too often, we are in that frame of mind that's like that old country song, why me, Lord? <laughs> and... uh we, yeah, it's like, what did I ever do to deserve this? And so we're, we're thinking about all, oh, oh, we're suffering so badly um, because we couldn't eat our donuts or whatever it might be. <laughs> yes. And the problem is that we are, it is a privilege to follow Jesus and so we've got our wires crossed about what our attitude should be. And then lastly, keep at the front of your mind and heart a sense of wonder at God's grace and mercy and calling a sinner like you to be in relationship with him. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a... What's a wretch? What's the other word that goes with that? If you add ed to it. Wretched. Do any of us like to say, I'm wretched? We like to say, I'm smart and well-dressed and you know, all of those kinds of things. We don't like to think about the fact that we have no merit of our own to claim but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And this is one of the problems. I love worship songs. We had some really good ones tonight. But one of the problems with a lot of worship songs is that sense of sin is just gone. When I was in another diocese that started going off the deep end, we started no longer kneeling when we said the confession. Then the confession got moved to where it was just during the Lent, and then they did away with the confession altogether because they said the confession implies that we're sinners and that there's something wrong with us, and that makes people feel bad, and then they don't want to come to church. So we're not going to do that anymore. Well, I'm sorry, but that is the whole message of Christianity, that we are sinners without a plea, except that Christ died for me. So uh, again, a little plug for the other link, and can it be that great song of wonder that Christ saved us? Because when you think about this, and you understand the wonder of what God has done for you, it makes you grateful, and that gratitude overflows. All right, so into the third letter. This is a really great letter. (laughs) So, my dear Wormwood, I'm very pleased by what you tell me about this man's relations with his mother. But you must press your advantage. The enemy will be working from the center (coughs) outwards, gradually bringing more and more of the patient's conduct under the new standard, and may reach his behavior to the old lady at any moment. (laughs) You want to get in first. Keep in close touch with our colleague Glubos who is in charge of the mother, and build up between you and that house a good settled habit of mutual annoyance, daily pinpricks. The following methods are useful. One, keep his mind on the inner life. He thinks his conversion is something inside him, and his attention is therefore chiefly tuned, turned at present to the states of his own mind, or rather to that very expurgated version of them, which is all you should allow him to see. Encourage this. Keep his mind off the most elementary duties by directing it to the most advanced and spiritual ones. Aggravate that most useful human characteristic, the horror and neglect of the obvious. You must bring him to a condition in which he can practice self-examination for an hour Without discovering any of those facts about himself, which are perfectly clear to anyone who has ever lived in the same house with him or worked in the same office. I'm just going to take a little detour here to share a story that I heard from the great missionary Elizabeth Elliot when she was talking one time. She was talking about when she was a little girl growing up in a Christian home, and at that point she was Elizabeth Howard, And her little brother was Tom Howard, who grew up to be a famous theologian and wrote a book called Christ the Tiger, which is really good. But Elizabeth and her brother were there at home, and one of the things they loved to do was to have sing-along time, where somebody played the piano and they usually would be singing hymns. But they also had chores. And so one night, her brother went in, I think he was about eight, and started playing Jesus loves me on the piano singing at the top of his lungs and his mother came in and said tom it's your night to do the dishes and he said but mother i'm singing jesus loves me that's more important and his mother said tom the lord is not honored when you're singing Jesus Loves Me when you're supposed to be washing the dishes. (laughs) And there's a lot of truth to that that we don't think about the fact that because we're doing our exalted spiritual thing, we've left somebody else to wash the dishes or clean the bathroom or clean up after us or whatever it might be. So this whole idea is, screw tape is saying, keep him so focused on how spiritual he is that he leaves this trail of wreckage everywhere he goes where other people are having to pick up the pieces. It is no doubt impossible to prevent his praying for his mother, but we have means of rendering the prayers innocuous. Make sure that they are always very spiritual, that he's always concerned with the state of her soul and never with her rheumatism. Two advantages follow. In the first place, his attention will be kept on what he regards as her sins, by which, with a little guidance from you, he can be induced to mean any of her actions which are inconvenient or irritating to himself. (laughs) Thus, you can keep rubbing the wounds of the day a little sore, even while he is on his knees. The operation is not at all difficult, and you will find it very entertaining. (laughs) In the second place... Since his ideas about her soul will be very crude and often erroneous, he will in some degree be praying for an imaginary person, (laughs) and it will be your task to make that imaginary person daily less and less like the real mother, the sharp-tongued old lady at the breakfast table. In time, you may get the cleavage so wide that no thought or feeling from his prayers for the imagined mother will ever flow over into his treatment of the real one. I have had patients of my own so well in hand that they could be turned at a moment's notice from impassioned prayer for a wife's or son's soul to beating or insulting the real wife or son without a qualm. And the idea here is it's so easy to turn your prayer life in the wrong direction. Oh, Lord, please help her not to be so annoying. You know, when we feel so spiritual about that, but we are not praying in the way that Jesus would have us pray. Let's just put it that way. (laughs) When two humans have lived together for many years, it usually happens that each has tones of voice and expressions of face which are almost unendurably irritating to the other. Work on that. Bring fully into the consciousness of your patient that particular lift of his mother's eyebrows which he learned to dislike in the nursery, and let him think how much he dislikes it. Let him assume that she knows how annoying it is and does it to annoy. If you know your job, he will not notice the immense improbability of the assumption. And of course, never let him suspect that he has tones and looks which similarly annoy her. As he cannot see or hear himself, this is easily managed. In civilized life, domestic (coughs) hatred usually expresses itself by saying things which would appear quite harmless on paper. The words are not offensive, but in such a voice or at such a moment that they are not far short of a blow in the face. To keep this game up, you and Glubos must see to it that each of these two fools has a sort of double standard. Your patient must demand that all his own utterances are to be taken at their face value and judged simply on the actual words, while at the same time judging all his mother's utterances with the fullest and most oversensitive interpretation of the tone and the context and the suspected intention. She must be encouraged to do the same to him. Hence, from every quarrel, they can both go away convinced or very nearly convinced that they're quite innocent. You know the kind of thing. I simply ask her what time dinner will be, and she flies into a temper. Once this habit is well established, you have the delightful situation of a human saying things with the express purpose of offending and yet having a grievance when offense is taken. Finally, tell me something about the old lady's religious position. Is she at all jealous of the new factor in her son's life? At all piqued that he should have learned from others, and so late, what she considers she gave him such good opportunity of learning in childhood. Does she feel he is making a great deal of fuss about it, or that he's getting in on very easy terms? Remember the elder brother in the enemy's story, your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Now, if any of you have lived in a household with children, or you can remember back when you were a child, you will know how true all of this is, particularly if you have had a teenager. (laughs) Teenagers are really good at this double standard of expecting you to take everything that they say just at face value, but even if you look at them the wrong way, what? what's wrong what did I do nothing I saw the way you looked at me why don't you just tell me I know you're always judging me you know all of those kinds of things that just happen and it flows and flows and all of a sudden you're in this big fight and you think how did that happen well I would suggest that your own versions of wormwood and glubos have been at it So part of it is that we think that that is just normal. And we also think that we somehow, when we are at home with our family, we can just let our hair down and let it all hang out. (laughs) That all of those rules of decent behavior and kindness Well, you don't have to do that with your family. They're stuck with you. So you should be able to be as rude as you like and avoid any chore or responsibility, and they should just love you and affirm you because this is what home is all about. Well, I would suggest to you that that concept is not found in Scripture anywhere. So, habits out of this letter to cultivate to annoy the devil. The first, keep your relationships surrounded with prayer and the Holy Spirit. One of the things that so often happens is that we tend to pray when there is a crisis. We pray when someone is sick or someone is dying or someone has lost a job or something like that. And that's good. We shouldn't not do that. But we forget that, as we talked about in that little excerpt from The Weight of Glory, that we are all day long dealing with creatures who are immortal, people who will live eternally with God or without him, and that every choice and every action and every word we say is helping people either to go closer to God or dragging them farther away from God. And that would be enough to tell you that relationships are a place where Satan can have a heyday. And if you are a Christian, one of the things that Satan would love to do is to have you say one thing with your lips and maybe even to act a certain way when you're at church, but then in the rest of your life with your relationships to be a real jerk. Because if he can do that, he can establish a great hypocrisy going on in your own life and I think all of us I know I certainly am guilty of that sometimes and part of it is because we forget to just pray over our regular relationships now I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand but how many of you don't raise your hand how many of you regularly pray over your relationships with the people that you work with probably we're more prone to pray for relationships in our family um, but sometimes we don't do that either But this is really important, that these relationships be surrounded by prayer and the Holy Spirit. Because if you don't do that, Satan can get a foothold. And when Satan gets a foothold, and particularly when it grows into a root of bitterness, um, it can change your whole life and absolutely demolish your witness for Christ. And this verse from Hebrews is a really good one. Strive, here's another one of those big horsepower words, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it by it, many become defiled. The problem with the root of bitterness is is bitter people cannot keep it to themselves. It overflows, and instead of being a fountain of life, it's a fountain of death. And I just have to say, I I was so amused. I was reading this article that came out last year from the Harvard Business Review, and it was talking about toxic corporate cultures and how to Mm. develop a corporate culture that was... Better. And so it was talking about how one of the worst things that you can have in your company, or they said in any situation, is complaining. And that when there's a lot of complaining, it actually rewires your brain and not only makes you unhappy, but the complaining overthrows, uh, overflows. And in the article, the author said, one of the chief reasons that this happens is say you're in a meeting And I'm just going to pick on Jane Gurley because she's so nice. Um, Imagine we're all in a meeting with Jane Gurley. And Jane, in the middle of the meeting, stands up, slams her fist on the table, and says, I'm disgusted with all you people. I'm not going to take it anymore. And then runs out of the meeting. And so then all of the rest of us spend the next week I'm going, did you hear what Jane Gurley did? <laughs> if Jane Gurley wasn't on this team, we'd actually be able to get something done. But when you have these people that can't process their emotions and they just throw their hands up and scream and run out, what are the rest of us supposed to do? And we go on and on, we feel so self righteous. And the Harvard Business Review guy said, That is not helpful. It causes people to become embittered. And he said, I have a novel approach that I would suggest that you try because it will make all the difference. If you find that what she did in the meeting was offensive, what you should do is go to her privately and state her fault. And then if that doesn't work, then you should get someone else to come with you. I don't know how many of you have read Jesus' advice in Matthew 18, but that is exactly what Jesus says to do. When you have a problem, instead of talking to your friends who are going to commiserate with you, but who can't solve the problem, you go to the person with whom you have the problem, as difficult as that may be, and talk about it. And if that doesn't work, then you bring someone with you And you talk about it. It's not an ambush. It's a trying to get back to peace with everyone that you're supposed to be striving for. So if you keep your relationships that way, it is remarkable how you will not have bitterness and you will have peace in your relationships and that will overflow onto those around you. And that leads to the second thing, cultivate the integration of your spiritual life in your outward behavior. Words, actions, thoughts, character, habits, model Christ-likeness. Now this may seem really obvious, but I would like to suggest to you, and maybe you all are more advanced than I am in this, but I would like to suggest to you that we very often have an idea of what we're like and how we treat others and what our priorities are that may not necessarily bear a lot of relation to reality. And so this cultivating the integration of our spiritual life and our outward behavior is really important. And one of the reasons Lewis is such a great example of this is we've talked before about his personal secretary uh, making the comment that Lewis was the most thoroughly converted man that he had ever met. And part of the reason Lewis had such an impact In his life was that those who knew him, whether it was the guy in the butcher shop or the master of the college where Lewis worked or the chaplain at the college or one of the generals in the RAF that Lewis was working with, is that he was an integrated man. What he believed, he lived out. And when he messed up, he went and asked for forgiveness, which is very difficult to do for most of us but this cultivating is so important and part of the reason it's so important is jesus said it's really important so what's jesus's longest and most important teaching the sermon on the mount matthew 5 6 and 7 if you've never read it in one sitting i would commend to you to start with matthew 5 and read right through to the end of chapter 7 That is one of the most profound and world-changing texts in the history of the human race. But in Jewish teaching, one of the characteristics of Jewish teaching is the beginning is really important, and the end is really important. And of course, in the Sermon on the Mount, it's all important. But (laughs) the ending, the last, the summation, the final closing argument, if you will, of the Sermon on the Mount is arguably the most important part of the whole thing. And here it is. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. I would like to suggest we don't think about that enough. this is exactly what Lewis is saying in the Screw Tape Letters, that you can hear Jesus' words. And if you just think about, oh, that's so nice. How profound. What a gifted teacher Jesus is. And then you just go your merry way. You are building your house on the sand. And it may not happen today, and it may not happen tomorrow, but at some point, The flood and the storm are going to come. And when they do, everything will collapse. Whereas if you build your house by hearing Jesus' word. Now notice, both of these people hear the word. These are not people that are just out partying at the rooftop at Vendee every night. (laughs) These are people that are hearing the word of the Lord. They're putting themselves in places where they can hear the word of the Lord. But because they're failing to apply it, they're missing out on the blessing of it. They're not having that strong rock. And it's no accident, again, another plug for old hymns, it's not an accident that that image of the solid rock is one that is just all over the of the, um, the Great Awakening and the Puritans and all of that because they understood this principle in a way that we don't. We don't like things like that in our culture because that sounds judgmental, you know, that it, there's one rock. But this, this whole idea of applying Jesus' words is exactly what we're talking about in these habits, to develop habits that help you to do that thirdly practice nurturing and practical prayer for others it is all too easy to pray for other people in a way that is really about our agenda for them oh lord please help my daughter to choose to go to the school that i want her to go to <laughs> and we're not we're not usually quite like that but we 're pretty close, we cloak it a little bit, oh Lord, please help my son to not date that trashy girl anymore, <laughs> you know, whatever it might be, our prayers, and you know that's a little bit of hyperbole, but our prayers are often cloaking our desires in some spiritual language, and that is not what the New Testament is all about. The New Testament encourages us to pray practically for others for their actual physical needs but also to pray what I've called nurturing prayer here which means to pray into them the fruit of the spirit love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness self-control if you don't know how to pray for other people go to the book of Ephesians and look at Paul's prayers for people and pray some of those over some of your friends and your family It will be a revelation to you. So often, part of what hampers us here is we don't know how to do this. But the the prayer book is also a great resource for this. Many of us think the prayer book is just something that we use on Sunday morning. But part of the reason that we have the prayer book is not because that's the gold standard or something like that. But it's because many of us have difficulty sometimes finding the words for what we want to pray and so these prayers by people who are deeply committed to Jesus Christ help us sometimes to find language to do that. Fourthly, believe the best and avoid being overly sensitive. I'm going to have to really restrain myself here. But <laughs> this is the, one of the major diseases of our culture right now. Because I'm triggered by the way you're looking at me. <laughs> Yeah, you know, we are so we are looking to be offended. We are looking to be triggered. We are looking to someone have some agenda against us, and we don't believe the best about people. Um, we are overly sensitive. And First Corinthians thirteen, uh, which many of us we hear that and it just kind of is like Wow, 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 wah. It's like the Charlie Brown teacher. We've heard it so many times that we don't notice it but it is one of the most striking and important passages in the New Testament because what it teaches us is that love is not a feeling. What it teaches is that love is a series of choices that we make about how we interact with other people. And part of what it says is love is patient and kind. It doesn't say love is when I feel patient and kind says love is patient and kind even when you don't feel that way it does not envy or boast it is not arrogant or rude it does not insist on its own way wow it is not irritable or resentful it does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. If you start trying to live this way in your relationships and in your view of what's happening in the world, it will transform you. We live in a hypercritical age, and it's so much that way that we just don't even realize anymore. We're in the stew, so we don't realize that we're in the stew. And part of what Jesus calls us to do is to be different, to live in a way that's different, as Ryan was saying in the sermon, that we're set apart. All right, I've got to wrap this up. So the fifth one, be gracious in all circumstances and speak life, especially with family. And there are so many verses about this, but I love this one from Proverbs 10. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked is conceals violence I think there's a lot of truth to that and the question for all of us is whether the words that we speak are words that are encouraging and life-giving and build up other people or whether they're words that tear down other people and uh, destroy the work that God wants to do in them and this is really hard Um, Scripture is full of verses about the tongue and the power of the tongue. But one of the things about this that's so important is if you get in the habit of speaking life, it is the most wonderful thing because it multiplies. And one of the things that I would encourage you to do, if you've got a cell phone, one of the ways you can redeem your cell phone (laughs) is to use it to send encouragement to people. Just send a text saying, I'm so grateful for you. I'm praying for you today. Something as simple as that can absolutely change someone's day. And emails can do the same thing. Um, we get so much stuff that comes over our phone and our email that is not like that, um, that it, is, it can be a great thing to do. And it's an area where we need to become proactive. Because we live in a world where discouragement is the norm. And scripture tells us to encourage one another daily. And we are to do that within the body of Christ. And it can it can literally transform your day. And I had a wonderful thing happen this morning. I randomly got an email um, from a former student of mine who is a senior in college. And he said he just happened to go on the St. Philip's website and listen to the talk that I did at the men's lunch last week, and then he went on and on about how God had used that, because right at the moment he was thinking about really worrying about vocation and what his job was going to be and all that. And he said, God used that to give him such peace. And then he said, thank you so much for taking the time to have given that talk. Well, he could have thought all those things, which would have been really lovely, but to take the time... You know, when you're a busy college student to take the time to write some old guy and say <laughs> those kinds of encouraging things, that's a sacrificial type of encouragement. But it was a beautiful thing that has had me encouraged all day long. So we need to practice that. And then the sixth thing, cultivate spiritual humility and be glad for others' spiritual growth. And I love this little passage. This is John the Baptist. When people come to him... Um, And there's still people, I'm sure we all, and sometimes we are these people, that come and we want to go murmur to somebody very quickly about something. And people have come to murmur to John the Baptist, and they say, did you know that Jesus guy you baptized? Some of your disciples are leaving you, and they're going to follow him. What are you going to do about it? And John, God bless him, says... that is a great example of true spiritual humility and we need to practice that kind of humility in our own lives so I just want to close again with this quotation about obedience our cause is never more in danger and this cause is the cause of the devil the devil's cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of these letters. We thank you for the gift of the promises of your scriptures, Lord, that are true with a capital T. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts and that you would so soften our wills that instead of being hardened against you, that they would be pliable to the work of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that you would draw us more and more in the Spirit's tether that we might experience the joy of following you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you all for coming.